thank you for joining us. Today we're going to dig a little bit further, dive a little deeper into, into the series on, on emotional health. And this one is all about limitations. I found it in pre preparation, I found it so interesting. And, um, and kind of, um, you, know, it's, you say this, you don't say this lightly, but you know, it's life changing. And um, I, yeah, it was, it was quite incredible. But I hope and I pray that, as I have prayed, that the Lord would stir in us all what needs to be stirred. How often in life is there just too much to do? And there's just too much going on. We're running around from one thing to the next, one meeting to the next, one task to the next. But it's not only work, it's all the layers of life. It's, just think about it. It's, it's work, it's family, it's hobbies, it's extended family, social life. And then the desire to do all the wonderful and cool things we see our friends or we think that they're getting up to. How many of us are living with the overwhelming feeling that we are overwhelmed? You know, in my business, I meet with a lot of clients every day and um, I've got this magnificent boardroom table. It's really nice and uh, it seats probably 18 people or so. It's a big boardroom and, and it's shiny. It had you know, layers of resin on it and all this sort of thing. So, sit there and talk about life and talk about all sorts of things and um, and just the stress and pressures people are under. That's the common theme. So, I look, say to them, look at this table. Look at this table. It's, it's, it's empty. There's just one paper on it. It's mine. The rest of it is shiny and, 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 and neat. And I say, what does the table of your life look like? Have a look at it. Is it, is it just a, a jumble on there? How many hundreds of things do you have on that table? Are they all intertwined and messy? How do you even get to some of this stuff? How anxiety-provoking is it? fearful when you can't do it all and I remind them to that the ability is in their hands to before God to take these things off the table all of them polish the table again and only put on there the one or two priorities that you need for the now when those are done with put the next one on and then I look at my life I'm like the car mechanic you go past his house and he's always working on his car but all his clients cars are fixed and um and this was very helpful for me because um, it really is, and I hope it's going to be for you. The big idea today is embracing God's limits. Embracing them, not begrudgingly accepting them, putting up with them, but learning to see God-given limits on our human existence as a way of finding our appropriate place in the world. We're going to be looking at the life of John the Baptizer, and this is an incredible life. He was an incredible man. He was truly great. In fact, Jesus has this to say of him. Out of Matthew 11, 11, says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Surely this is someone we can learn from. What we'll disco discover is that he's incredible. He had incredible self-awareness. He, he had an awareness about John uh, um, God's calling on his life and his place in the world. 
He had such clarity about what God's will was for him and his contribution and role to play. But amazingly, and even more rarely, he had an awareness of what wasn't his to do, what wasn't his to be. It's this profound clarity of call and clarity of limit that enabled him to live so well. Let us pray. Father, as we go through and traverse your word, would you, would you bring out stuff that lurks deep in us, Lord, and by your spirit, Father, with the Holy Spirit, just bring that into light and yeah, allow us to address that um, in your good company. Thank you for that, Lord. Amen. Let's turn, let's dive right in, John 1, 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed. He did not deny. He confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. They said, Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Well, who are you? We need to give an answer to the ones that have sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now we'll see exactly what John does. When we turn to verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, before because he was before me. The next day again, John was standing with his two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Then we're just going on to chapter 3, verse 22, reads as follows. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aonon near Salem, because water is plentiful there, and people were coming to be baptized. This is before he was put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over, over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now the test comes in. Jesus has set up shop across the river from John. And people are now walking past John and going to Jesus. Where John had the monopoly in the past, he now was in the minority. And someone had the audacity to ask him about it. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Okay, so what can we learn about limits on our lives from the life of John? Incredibly, John was able to celebrate that Jesus was more successful than he was. You've got to imagine 
day by day, the line getting shorter and shorter in front of John, while the lines got longer and longer across the river. John could see where all the people were going, yet John was able to celebrate. Are we able to celebrate when others do better than us? All human beings are created in the image of God. All human beings are equal before God and one another in value and worth because we are in the image of God. But, and here's the thing, we're not all equal in terms of our gifting and our talents and our capacity. Just think about it for a second. I know that you know this is true. But think of all the ways we struggle to accept it. Accept this reality. Most of you, many of you, like me, had kids at school at some time in the distant past. I don't want to give my age away too, too dramatically. But um, in recent times, society has deemed it fit, especially at school level. I mean, your kids go to school. And they come back with a, a prize, the Gentleman's Award. And you say to your son, my son, I'm so proud of you. Or your daughter, darling, Jane, I'm so proud of you. And then we're talking to our mate, watching the kids playing rugby the next week's week or soccer or something. And he says, you know, my son got the Gentleman's Award. And every week somebody's getting the Gentleman's Award or the Young Lady Award or some award because... Everybody's got to be equal. Now, <laughs> that's, that's, modern, that's modern society for you. We tell our kids, and we so desperately want them to know this is a truth, that they can be anything they want to be. All they have to do is do the following, and, and they can do it. Set their sights up there and go for it. But then you get out of school. And into life. And we discover that our world is not like school. And so much like life, especially work, is in fact merit-based. Everyone doesn't get an award anymore. And not everyone is credit equal in gifting and in capacity. The Bible teaches us this. Romans 12.6 We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy according, in accordance with your faith. Think, for, the, for example, about the parable of the talents out of Matthew 25. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. One of them got one, another two, another got five bags. Some of you are five-bag people. Most of us are one- or two-bag people, and that's okay. But what if happens if you're driven or competitive? What if you're a two-bag person and you spend your days looking at the Insta Instagram account of five-bag people? What does that do to your life? What does it do to your life cadence? Even what does it do at the level of your soul? It causes pain. Social media is just rocket fuel to the fire. 
we compare ourselves with a small percent of people who are super successful, then we show the world only the highlights of our life through social media, reinforcing this for everyone else. We don't show them the drudgery of our lives. We don't show them our morning hair and our, when we haven't shaved. We don't show them our Strava data when we've got a cough injury or we're unfit. We only show them a peep in when things are really looking good for us and we feel we're on top of our game. The truth is, generally speaking, most of, most of us also have unrealistic expectations about how our lives will turn out. We all expect to be unicorns, right? We all expect to live well, to retire well, have near-perfect children, rock star, amazing spouses, earn lots of money. I know this is all relative, but I think most of us live with unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations of our days, of our months, and of our years. So we're constantly being robbed by the thief of joy, comparison. All that happens then is our insecurities rise. Then disappointment with our lives. My job isn't good enough. My house isn't good enough. I'm not good enough. So instead of feeling gratitude, we have a feeling of entitlement, jealousy, and maybe even sadness because of someone else's life. All of us are vulnerable to this because there will always be someone more successful than us. Even if you get to the top, your life is one moment away from losing it. Success is never enough. Think of John in the heyday of his ministry, and then Jesus sets up stall across the Jordan. If I may say so, we define success wrongly. We measure our success by progress. Progress is by definition better. So things must always be moving along in the right direction. Which is bigger, which is better? When the numbers are moving in the right direction, we feel great, and we deem our efforts a success, maybe even ourselves worthy. But if the numbers are decreasing, we feel despondent and consider our efforts, maybe even ourselves, a failure. Peter Cesare had this to say, over time our sense of worth and validation gradually shifts from a grounding in God's love to the success or failure of our ministry work and performance. Progress in success, according to this very narrow definition, has become the basis on which we live our lives, our weeks, our months, our years. Lives a success or a failure? Do we ever stop and consider asking ourselves, what is success in the eyes of God? Success, according to Scripture, is becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in His way and according to His timetable. Let's look back at, to John's life and let's just see what we can learn from him. John had clarity on his identity, his calling, and his limitations. And let's look at these three things, identity, calling, and limitations, and how they relate personally, how they relate to each and every one of our lives. Identity, John said, I am the voice 
of the one calling the wilderness. I'm not the Messiah, neither am Prophet Elijah. These would have been nice, but they weren't true of John. We see his identity was grounded in Scripture. He quoted Scripture from Isaiah. So what you can see yeah, is that John had an identity that was rooted in Scriptures. He knew what the Bible said about who he was and what he should be doing. He was also grounded in himself. He knew it was him. That's who I am. I'm the voice in the wilderness. That's my part to play. He knew who God created him to be, his true self. Without hesitation, he stated his identity. Can we do this? Out of John, he said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I am a voice in the wilderness. I baptize with water, but the Messiah is coming, and I'm not even worthy to untie his straps of his sandals. All of us stray from our identity. I wonder how much energy we spend, how much time we spend in trying to be something or someone we're not. I saw the most horrific thing. Um, talking about identity, the, the extremes in everything. And when we look right at the end of the extreme of where this thing can go to, we look at people who spend their life savings, every cent they have, everything they have on plastic surgeons to look like somebody else that they admire, that they want to be like. They want to live their life like them. They do that. And we look at it. We sit here and we say, if I showed you the photographs, you would say that is absolutely obscene and scary. And we look at it and we say, why are you even showing us that? We're not like that. But remember, that's the extreme. The rule is this long. Where are you over here? If you look closely at John, you'll see he didn't, just, he didn't adjust his message to avoid offending the rulers of the day. He remained true to his integrity. His identity, who he was. Calling what he did. I'm the voice in the wilderness preparing the way. John knew that his job was to prepare the way for Jesus. This was his calling. That's what he was here to do. I think we can fall into the trap of believing the lie that it's who we are is far more important than what we do. Whilst your identity, who you, who you are, really does matter, so does what you do, your calling. Ideally, what you do should in fact reflect and flow out of who you are. John had clarity not just about who he was, but what he was here to do. Today we speak of vocation. This includes our jobs, but it's much broader than that. So how do you go about discovering your calling? Most of us will learn our calling from personality tests and being in community rather than through a burning bush. Calling is less something you decide, more like something you unearth in community with the Spirit. What this means is that we've got to rethink failure. We have to learn how to see failure as a good thing. It is only in trying things out that we can work out what we really meant to do. In much of life, you only get through, through failing. It's worth saying that 
What we're called to do isn't always what we want to do. Sometimes we have to grieve the death of some of our hopes and dreams to receive the future that God has purposed for our lives. The alternate is we'll end up miserable trying to do something we're not meant to do. What is perhaps most striking about John the Baptist is his complete freedom from performing or impressing people. John had a clear sense of what was his to do and what wasn't his to do. A third one, limitations. A person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. That's John 3.27. That for John was success. Our culture says you can do and be anything you want. Certainly if you grow up like many of us in a privileged upbringing, that's always said. But it's really a dangerous idea. I was never going to be a springback surfer. From when I was in Surbay or Standard 1, whatever it is, grade 2 or 3 now, I slept on the beach. I started to get the waves early with my mates. I walked down 3 o'clock in the morning from my house to get that first light in summer. I surfed all the competitions. And I did this for decades. I had all their posters on my wall. I knew all their moves. I watched their, their, their movies and tried to mimic them. I never became a springback surfer. Now here's the thing. We need to learn to see both our capacity and our limitations as a sign of God's calling on our lives. Our limitations are clues to our calling too. John had an authority and a presence, a commanding presence, that hadn't been seen in Israel for hundreds of years. At the same time, he was experiencing a steady and then a steep numerical decline in his ministry. Yet, he was secure in what God had called him to do. He didn't assume something was wrong because his ministry was declining. I say that again. He didn't assume something was wrong because his ministry was declining. What are the limits on your life? What are the limits on your life? What are the limits on your personality and your temperament? What are the limits of your current season of life? You might have young kids, elderly parents you need looking after. You might have an illness, all sorts of things. What are the limits of your marriage or singleness? Things you can't do. If you're married, you've got to cut your free time by half. And if you've got kids, by half again. It's not bad. It's good. But we've got to learn to read the seasons of our lives. What are the limits of your emotional, physical, and intellectual capacities? All of us have differing capacities. What are the limits of your family of origin? What are the limits of your time? Peter Cesaro says we need to learn to and here's the, the action point of today's big idea. Receive the gift of limits. Receive the gift of limits. Most of us don't receive them. We fight them. We deny them. We try to do all we can to push past them. We certainly don't receive them. Society views a limitless life like a, like a desire for a drug. 
We don't think of them as a gift. We think of our limitations more like a curse than a gift. We resent all that we're unable to do. And it robs us of our peace and our contentment. How often do you thank God for the limitations in your life? In growing more emotionally healthy, we need to learn to see our limitations are not an enemy to go to war with, but a friend to lead and guide us into our identity, calling and eventually our emotional health. When we fight them, we end up emotionally unhealthy and immature. Maturity in life is when we learn to live within our God-given limits. A core mark of emotionally healthy discipleship is a deep theological and practical understanding of limits. Without that, we severely compromise our ability to love God, love ourselves, and love others over the long haul. Okay, but how? Just two. First, we need to figure out what to say yes to. We need to figure out what to say yes to. Making sure that we're doing the right things for our lives. Both vocationally and making sure that we're living out the old adage. If your outflow exceeds your inflow, the difference will be your downfall. Parker Palmer said this about this dynamic. He said, self-care is never a selfish act. It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to share with others. Almost there. Second, learn the art of saying no. They asked John the Baptist, are you the Messiah? Look at his answer. No. But the temptation is always to say yes. How we choose to understand and respond to our limits goes to the core of our relationship with God. All of us have passaged through and read Genesis or parts of it and always the part of the the fall, the original sin, temptation, Adam and Eve story, the narrative there. Think back to when you read it. The evil one made limits the target of his strategy from the very beginning. How did the Satan want Adam and Eve to think about their limitations and the God who gave them limitations? The devil wanted to think of God's wanted them to think of God's limits as an indicator of his stinginess rather than of his love. So rather than receiving God's limits, Adam and Eve became convinced God was withholding something good from them. Let's just rewind and look at that temptation. What was it? You too can be like God. Omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all the good stuff. One way of looking at Adam and Eve's original sin is to see their act as a defiance of God's limits and his gift of limits. Rather than being in the image of God, we want to become God ourselves. So we do the same when we live like this. I can do anything, know anything, be everywhere. The honest truth is this. In living beyond our limits, we think we are gaining more in life when in fact we end up strangling 
our quality of life, trying to be like God. Think of Jesus, who is our Savior, and he's also our example. Even Jesus had limitations. He chose to live within their confines. God in Jesus, for an instant in history, stepped into our world. He became man, flesh and blood human being, just like you and me. Not Clark Kent hiding Superman under his suit. Jesus was a human. While he walked the earth, he was no longer omnipotent. He got tired, needed to sleep, needed to eat, needed to rest, needed to wash, just like everyone else. He had limited knowledge and often had to ask questions. Like you and I, he could only be present in one place at one time. And that was before cell phones and social media, which connects us anytime, place, anywhere in the whole world. Yet he embraced his limitations and trusted God in the gap. He lived at peace within the confines of his limitations. This is the biggie. He trusted God for what was outside of his limitations. There are some questions I want you to ponder on for reflection. Who are you? And how can you live more into your true self? What are you called to do? What are you not called to do? What are your limitations? Where are you living out of them right now? Where is the emotional unhealth? Because you can't say no. As we contemplate communion, I want to remind you of who we come before today. We come before our Savior, our Lord, and our Shepherd. We come before the King of Kings and His throne of grace. We come to him because he says, come to me, all who are thirsty, who are heavily laden and burdened. We come to him because he says, I will give you rest. We come, to, we come to him because he says to us that in this world you will have trouble, but I've overcome the world. We come to him because in his amazing grace he found a wretch like you and I. 